today, we are going to be in, in a lot of different passages of Scripture. So I'm just getting you ready. So everybody get out your hands, right? All right they're already a little cold this morning because of the weather. So we're going to warm them up today. We're going to warm up our fingers because we're going to be turning to a lot of different places in God's Word. And I don't know of a greater sound other than you guys sounded amazing this morning singing to Him. So probably the second greatest sound to me in a church service is hearing the pages of God's Word being turned. And so you're going to have an opportunity to do that in a probably much more than normal way. Normally we're in one passage of Scripture for the entirety of the message, walking through that verse by verse, but today's going to be a little different. Still going to be in God's Word, but going to a lot of different places. And if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to take notes this morning, we're going to kick off this new year. And this message titled this way, here it is, the importance of your purpose. Every one of us have a purpose that we live our lives by. Some intentionally know what that purpose is, and others of us are very non-intentional with it, but we're still living our lives according to a purpose. And so this morning, I want us to see from God's Word what God's Word has to say about what our purpose is. And for us to walk out of these doors this morning, understand the importance of what God's purpose is for our lives. So here's the idea that I want you to get today. Write it down. Here it is. Your purpose for life will shape your priorities in life. I don't think anybody would disagree with that statement. That your purpose in life, whatever that is, will shape your priorities in life. And so let me just explain that a little bit better by defining what I mean by purpose and defining what I mean by priorities. Here's the definition of purpose. Simply why you do what you do. That's what purpose is. If you want to say it a different way, it's the lens by which you view life through. Your purpose. Here's the definition for priorities that I came up with. What you value in order of importance to achieve your determined purpose. So think about it this way. Another way to say it is your priorities reveal your purpose. So whatever your priorities are right now in life, it is going to reveal to you what you understand your purpose to be. And so I want to talk about that today because we go into the new year, and I thought it was interesting. I didn't get to see how many people raised their hands, so I want to ask it myself. Last week, we have David Rudy here who's planning a church in Spartanburg. Gray and I are going to be down in Spartanburg tonight. They have their first vision meeting, so you can be, begin praying for them just to share with those interested what that church is going to be about. And so we're going to go to that, down there to support them, and Gray's going to lead some worship. But he shared this last week talking about New Year's resolutions, and he asked, how many of you make them? Now, here's the deal. I was sitting right there, so I didn't get to see all the hands that were raised or weren't raised. So I'm going to ask that question again. So I want you to raise your hand and keep it up, all right? So how many of you make, have made or make New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. Keep it up. Nice and high. Okay, those of you who hand your hand raised, keep it up. Keep it up. Look around and see how many people don't have their hand raised. I find that so interesting. And so I asked myself, you can put your hand down, Hayden. I see it, buddy. <laughs> Very proud of his New Year's. Praise God for you. But when I think about this subject, I'm actually pretty shocked that more people don't make New Year's resolutions. 
And so it got me thinking. I know we heard some statistics last week, but I had some other questions to ask. Like, well, how many people don't even make them? And so I started Googling uh, that question and came across this amazing website called Statistic Brain. It has statistics about everything. And New Year's resolutions is no different. And so let me share some of these with you. 42% of people never make New Year's resolutions. 42%. Now, this crowd is way above that average. But 42% on, uh, I don't know how many people they asked, but they came 42% never make them. 8% keep them. We, we look, we, that was shared last week. Here's what I think is interesting. 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by the month of February. Maybe that's why you don't make them anymore. 42% never have seen success in their New Year's resolutions. Here's what I believe. That every believer, what I mean by that is every follower of Jesus Christ who's placed their trust in him as their Lord and Savior, I believe ought to raise their hands when asked that question, have you made New Year's resolutions? Even though I don't like the question. I think it's a bad question. I don't like the word resolution because of everything that's equated with it because most of you don't make them or wouldn't say you make them because you equate the word resolution with failure. So I don't like that word. I think the questions that we ought to be asking is this. I wrote two questions down. Here's the questions we ought to be asking ourselves as we go into this new year of 2018, and I really believe we ought to be asking these questions often of ourselves, and here's the first one. What priorities have I set in place this year that are in harmony with the purpose that God has for my life? See, I like the word priorities better than resolutions. We need to be asking ourselves that as followers of Jesus Christ all the time. You ought to be asking yourself that as you walk into 2018. I should be doing the same. What priorities have I set in place this year that are in harmony with the purpose God has for my life? Here's a second question we ought to be asking often. How am I doing? As I evaluate how I'm living out those priorities. Like we need to be asking ourselves all that all the time. How am I living out these priorities that I have put in place based on understanding God's purpose for me? And so your next question should be for me, well, what's God's purpose for me? Look, just look to the person next to you and ask that question. What's God's purpose for me? Don't answer it, just ask it. What's God's purpose for me? So I'm glad you asked, because I want us to see from God's word this morning as we get into this topic of your purpose for life will shape your priorities in life. Let me share with you some scriptures. We're going to go through these quickly. Isaiah 43, 7 says this. God says this, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He's speaking this in relationship to Israel, but it gives us a broader application that God has created us for his glory. You look all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, and God says, let us make man and woman in our image, that we are created in God's image for God's glory. 1 Samuel 12, 24, to give you a little context, this is Samuel's retirement speech. He's about to, knows his time has come to no longer be the prophet for Israel. And he says this to Israel, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Key word, only. You've heard me say this many times. Fear the Lord means worshipful submission. God, I'm here for you. You're not here for me. 
So we see yet again, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done. John 17, 4, Jesus has given us the ultimate example of what it looks like to live this life. And Jesus even prays in John 17, I glorified you, who's you? God the Father, I glorified you on this earth and have, having, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is even saying, God, I have glorified you by doing what you've called me to do. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. What is he saying? My life is not mine to live. It is lived for you. And then I actually want you to turn to this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Many of you have probably have this memorized by heart. And if you're like, I'm not sure what that is, as soon as we read it, you're going to say, ah, yes. Probably the most simple verse that answers the question, what is God's ultimate purpose for my life? It says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul speaking, whether you eat or drink, Key phrase, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So if that's what God's word says just in a few verses that I pointed out, then how can we answer the question? How do we answer the question? What's the right answer according to God's word about what is my ultimate purpose in life? And you know what it is? To glorify God in all that I do. That's God's purpose for your life, is for you to give him glory in all that you do, everything that you walk through, everything that you do, how you work, how you parent, how you're a spouse, how you're a friend, how you date, everything, everything, whatever you do, that's what it says. That's not a definition I've come up with. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That is our purpose. It's interesting that even in 1647, there was something written called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it was written to help educate children on major themes of the Bible. It was 107 questions with questions and answers. And the most famous question of all of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, all the way back to 1647, was this. What is the chief end of man? That was the question, and here was the answer. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think it's interesting that that catechism emphasizes that. What is my ultimate purpose? Why am I on this earth? How do I live my life? Why do I live my life? And the answer, to glorify God. That's our purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I can get off kilter on my purpose. And when I get off of my purpose, then the gradual result is my priorities are going to be off. Why? Because what did we say? Your purpose will shape your priorities. And I almost remember what I said purpose was. It's the lens by which you view life through. And so many of us make a choice every day on what purpose am I going to live my life by. And so some of us decide to live with the lens that it's all about me. Now think about this. If I came into church like this, with these on, and walked in and worshipped the Lord with my sunglasses on and came up here to preach, what would you think of me? Don't say it out loud. Just keep it in here. But I'm pretty sure it's not like, man, what a... 
what a humble guy. Right? Man, he's just so humble. No, you'd be like, who is this arrogant guy who thinks he's somebody that he clearly is not? Right? But that's so often, I mean, that's how God sees us when we live our life with this lens that says, no, I'm going to block out and darken the ultimate purpose that you have for me. That I'm going to live my life according to what I want to do, according to my goals, according to my objectives, according to my appetites, according to whatever I want to do. And God, you better fit in with what I want to do. When we live with that purpose, though we would never admit it, but when we live with that purpose, our priorities are going to reveal that. And we live with that person with a lens that is darkened to truly see what God's word clearly communicates our ultimate purpose is. And what I want to talk about this morning is us. If we understand that our ultimate purpose and we embrace that and we see that as good, that our ultimate purpose is to glorify God, now all of a sudden it's not sunglasses that are darkening that perspective, but we're actually putting on the glasses that God desires us to have to be able to see life for what it truly is, to be able to see it more clearly and say, Lord, I clearly see that my ultimate purpose is to glorify you in all that I do, and I see I see that is good, and I see that is right, and I see that as a way to experiencing blessing in my life. That's how God wants us to see life, with the glasses on of God's Word and His Spirit so that we see our purpose for life the way that God sees it, rather than us living a life that says, man, it's all about me, and God's here to serve me. And walk around as arrogant, obnoxious Christians that live lives totally contrary to what we say we believe. That's what I want to do this morning. Because I think it's important for us to understand that God-glorifying priorities never happen by chance. They just don't. That's why I said, man, every follower of Jesus Christ ought to be setting priorities every year and evaluating those throughout the year based on their purpose. So when someone says, hey, have you made New Year's resolutions, even though we don't like the word, man, we're saying, yes, I've evaluated my life going into this new year to see if it lines up with my ultimate purpose to glorify God and do my priorities line up with that purpose. So let me give you five God-glorifying priorities this morning. That's what I want to do. Five God-glorifying priorities that are in line with our ultimate purpose. Here's the first one. I will glorify God with my personal time and his word in prayer. That going into this new year that we're like, I'm going to recalibrate myself and remind myself that my ultimate purpose is not for me, but it is to glorify God. And my priorities are going to line up with that purpose. And I'm going into this year saying, this year, 2018, I'm going to glorify God with my personal time in his word and prayer. You know, when I, from time to time when I evaluate my life, you know what's so staggering is that I get caught up believing that I can do God's work without God's power. And just like I've been given a responsibility and what it looks like to do God's work in my context, so have you. It could be a doctor, it could be a nurse, it could be a teacher, it could be, could be a mom, it could be a dad, it could be working in construction, whatever it is. That's God's work. And how can you go into a day expecting to do God's work without God's power? 
But we do that, don't we? Turn in your Bibles to Joshua 1, 7 through 9. Here we go. About to get started. Joshua 1, verses 7 through 9. And I'm going to turn there with you all in Joshua 1, 7 through 9. And, and we come to this passage of Scripture where Joshua has been anointed the new leader of Israel. He's got some big shoes to follow. It's Moses. And in Joshua 1, they're standing there at the brink of the Jordan River with millions of people. And Joshua is like, I got, we got to cross this river. It reminds me of something that God did to lead us out of Egypt. But is God going to still do for us what he did for Moses? And is God going to have his hand on me like he had on Moses? And I'm sure if we put ourselves in Joshua's shoes, though it doesn't tell us, I'm sure Joshua's a little fearful. I'm sure Joshua's knees are probably knocking a bit. Because all eyes are on him now. And God gives Joshua some clear instructions and some clear encouragement in Joshua 1, verses 7 through 9. And it says in verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Like Joshua, you know what your responsibility is? To be strong and very courageous. But then he's, God tells him how to do it. Be careful to do according to all the law that is that my servant, my my, that Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And what's the consequence of him being obedient to what God says? It says, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua has been given a tremendous and mind-blowing task to take a group of people that don't exactly have the greatest track record with not being fickle in their faith and towards their leader. And then he has to take this group of people into a land that God has promised, but a land that he knows is going to have battles. And he's taking a group of people that aren't too tested and tried in the battlefront. And he has every reason to be fearful. But God tells him three times in verses 6 through 9, be strong and very courageous. And it's interesting that at the end of this chapter in verse 18, the people tell Joshua, be strong and very courageous. So obviously Joshua needs to hear this more than once. But verse 7, God tells Joshua how to be very strong and courageous. It really gives us a principle about God's word in general, that God never gives imperatives without indicatives. Here's another way to say that, that God's never going to tell you to do something without giving you the instructions on how to do it. That's the beautiful thing about God's word. And God tells Joshua, Joshua, be very strong and courageous, but then he tells him how to experience that. And isn't it interesting that he clearly communicates that, Joshua, you cannot be very strong and courageous apart from you being in God's word. You can't do my work, Joshua, without my power. And that's found by you being in my word. And so when I say that our priority, the first one that we, look like, that we looked at this morning is I will glorify God with my personal time in his word in prayer. How do we do that based on these verses? Here's the first thing. We take time to read it. You thought I was going to give you some like very insightful thing right there, didn't you? 
No, it's that obvious. We take time to read it. Get in it. We no longer live in an age where it's like, well, I don't know how to do that. Because there's a beautiful thing called a search engine. Where there are reading plans out there for every topic you can imagine. There's reading plans out there of how you read the Bible in a year. There's reading plans for how you read the Bible in two years. There's reading plans for how you read the Bible in 30 days. There's reading plans for how you deal when you're walking through this or walking through that. We no longer have any excuses on having the knowledge to do something. It's a matter of, are we going to make it a priority? And if we understand our purpose is to glorify God, then the priority will fall in line. Here's the second thing, because it says there, does it not keep this book of the law always on your lips? Take time to read it. Here's the second thing. We're to think and pray about it. What does it say? Meditate on it day and night. There's sometimes confusion on what that phrase means, but here's the principle of what this phrase means. It means that there's never a decision that I make that God's word is not in the driver's seat of that decision. That I'm going to meditate on it day and night. That I'm going to think about it. That I'm going to pray about it. In our Nehemiah series, literally a year ago at this time, we walked through some simple principles of how we read God's word. Remember, we start before we ever open and say, Lord, would you show me what you have for me today? Remember, we pray. We have a pen. We ask ourselves three questions. What is God saying to me? How does this apply to me today? What behavior needs to change? We close our time out in prayer. Remember what we talked about prayer. You're going to hear, if you're new to Harvest, this is what we say all the time. How do we pray? We pray on our knees, out loud, with a list. Just to be totally transparent as I evaluated my own Like, Lord, how am I glorifying you by the way that I'm spending time in your word and prayer? And I'm like, you know what? I need to get more intentional with how I'm journaling and what I'm writing out. And so I bought a brand new journal, new year. Let's start. Let's get going. Let me write out what I'm asking you to do, God. Let me write out what my desires are and how they ought to line up with you, God. Let me remind myself that I'm here to glorify you. And that happens first by glorifying you by the time that I spend with you and in your word. We're to talk about it. What does it say? It's always on your lips. Isn't that what it says? You see it there with your own eyes. You know a great way to do that if you're a part of this church is get in a life group if you're not in one already. What a great thing to say starting out the new year. I'm going to get plugged into biblical community so that I'm in an environment where I can actually talk about God's word. After the service, you can sign up for one right at the Work for Christ table. We've made it very easy for you this morning. And then obey it, because isn't that what it says? To be careful to do everything written in it. Now, we always want to focus on what's the success. Like, what's the success mean, right? And here's what the success means, that when I'm doing this, I'm able to see and embrace God's purpose and plan as it's revealed in my life. Say, God, I'm seeing it revealed. I'm seeing, I have the opportunity to see what you're doing in my life. I'm seeing how I'm growing. I'm seeing your plan revealed in my life through the ups and the downs. Man, that's success. We're not going to miss God's will because God's will is God's word. Here's a second priority, God-glorifying priority. I will glorify God with my relationships. Aren't you glad that I just didn't focus it so much on I will glorify God in my marriage because those of you who are not married, how tired of you are you of that, right? All right, they're talking about the married people again and I'm not married. I thought about you this week. So I said, no, 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 we're going to make this 
priority. I will glorify God in my relationships. And so we're going to cover the whole gamut. First of all, I'm going to glorify God in my relationships. What does that mean? In my friendships. Here's what I mean by that. That I will be a friend who builds others up with my words and actions rather than tear others down. That's how I'm going to glorify God. In my friendships. And I think a great question to ask is this. Am I a friend to others? Or I should say this. Am I the friend to others that I want? Ask yourself that. Am I the friend to others that I desire? And the Bible is very clear on this. I mean, in, let me just read to you some verses. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, if you want to write these down. We often refer to that as why we need to attend ch- church and not forsake gathering together with God's people. And I would say yes to that. But there's another principle this, that we're called to stir one another to love and good works, to motivate one another to love and good works. Am I that type of friend that after someone spends time with me, there's a greater desire there and there's an encouragement there to keep serving Jesus? Or am I that, am I that type of friend that just brings the other person always down? Here's my concern with that. You probably don't even realize it. What did we say? According to our words and actions, that I want to be a type of friend who builds one another up with words and actions. James 3, 8 through 10 is a great passage of Scripture on the tongue. Lord willing, we're going to be walking through James after Easter. And the danger of the tongue and how, it's, how it is a fire, the Bible says. And are we guarding what we're saying? In Mark 12, you have the first and second greatest commandments that Jesus referred to. We know them well, probably. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like unto it, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Are you loving someone the way that you desire to be loved? Are we going to make the resolution or the priority, to use the better word, that I'm going to glorify God this year in my relationships, in my friendships? What about this one? Not only friendships, but if you're dating this morning, your dating relationship. That you're saying to yourself, I'm going to glorify God by who I date and what I do when I date. It's important. Write down this phrase. It's very easy to remember. Every date is a possible mate. Do you like that? Every date is a possible mate. I wish I was bright enough to come up with that, but that's not new to me. Every date is a possible mate. We heard that when Lori and I were in college. Every date is a possible mate. And what does the Bible say about our standards? 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Every date's a possible mate, which tells me there ought not to be any missionary dating. You know what I mean by that? Like, well, I'm going to win him to Jesus or win her to Jesus. Listen, I know there's people out here that you dated that way, and by God's grace, he protected you through that, and that person came to know Jesus Christ as as their Savior, and you're living a, a, a marriage, and by God's grace, that's glorifying God, and I praise God for that. But if you sit where I sit, the vast majority of stories are not that way. And you know what I've found, and you know what I counsel people? 
that are so motivated by I gotta have a relationship and so I'm gonna lower my standards because I can't, I'm, I hate the thought of being alone. I can tell you this and listen to me if this is you. That I've seen that when you marry the wrong person, you are so much more lonely than waiting to marry the right person. I cannot stress that enough to you today. And so it's saying I'm going to go into this year and I'm going to glorify God with my relationships. And if you're dating, you're saying, man, I'm going to make sure that I'm not lowering my standard because I'm afraid of being alone. Rather, I'm going to believe that God's ultimate purpose for my life is to glorify him, that I'm going to see life in that lens and say that that lens is really the way that I experience God's best and God's blessing. What about boundaries in your relationship if you're dating? Like, hey, we're not going to do this. We're not going to be alone here. We're not going to do these things. We're going to keep those in boundaries. Why? Because God has clearly told us that our dating relationship is to glorify him. We don't have time to turn there, but write this passage down, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, clearly stating that we are to flee sexual immorality. Because that, unlike any other sin, sin is sin, but that, unlike any others, harms the body in a way that others don't. Because having sex with someone is so much more than just a physical thing. It's an emotional thing. It's a spiritual thing. I'm going to glorify God with my dating relationships. How about this? I haven't let this out, left this out. I will glorify God with my relationships, and if this is you, your marriage. That we're saying I'm going to be a spouse who loves my wife, my husband, like Jesus loves me. And we can't do that apart from making sure that that first priority is what it needs to be. Because I can't give my wife, Lori, what I'm not first getting from my own personal relationship with the Lord. That Ephesians 5, 22 through 25, we see, wives, submit yourself unto your husbands as unto the Lord. And unfortunately, our society is so corrupted, that word submit, that it gives us this doormat, I'm less than type of idea. But it's actually a very strong idea because that word submit literally has the idea of wives, you're holding your husbands up. It's not a very weak word, is it, when you understand it that way? That you are your husband's greatest cheerleader. You're his greatest support. That you're there for him. That's a strong word when we understand it the way the Bible clearly communicates it. But I do that just like I do it to the Lord. Just like I place myself under the Lord's leadership. Because I understand he's good and he's gracious and he's kind and he wants what's best for me. And husbands, if our wives are not doing that in our lives, and the first finger we point is not to our wives, but we point it to ourselves, and we say, am I loving my wife just like Jesus loves me? Am I loving my wife that way? Am I giving her motivation to support me the way that the Bible says? Am I being the initiator in our relationship with taking her out on dates, with telling her that I love her, with showing her that I care? And those are ongoing conversations that we need to constantly have with our spouses, guys, where we're saying, how are we doing? How am I doing in this? How am I doing that? Lori and I have to have those conversations all the time. And most of the time, you know what it is? I got to improve on something. Not because of she's demanding me, because I'm messing up. Because so often I get caught off into thinking that the purpose in life is me. And it's not. 
We're going to glorify God in our relationship. Here's the third thing. I will glorify God with my family. With my family. I want you to turn to this passage of Scripture because I do want us to turn here. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7. I'm actually going to start in verse 6. Verse 5 talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And it says in verse 6, And these words that I command you today, this is God's instructions to Israel, shall be on your heart first. Just like I can't give my spouse what I'm not getting from God first, I can't give my kids what I'm not getting from God first. And once they're on my heart, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Well, how do we do that? Keyword diligently, intentionally, making it a priority. Because I understand my ultimate purpose is to glorify God, and that means in everything that I do, which includes my family. I love how, once again, imperatives are not absent from indicatives. We're supposed to teach them diligently. How do we do that? God tells us, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you see the intentionality there? That I'm looking for every opportunity to sprinkle God's word and God's principles in every part and every crack and crevice of my children's lives. And it's interesting that For so long we thought, you know what has a tendency to tear down the fabric of who God is in our kids' lives? We think, well, when they go to college, they're exposed to professors and teaching that just literally wants to tear down their biblical worldview, right? That's what we've always thought, and I'm not going to say that that's no longer the case, but it's... But what's interesting is, is studies are being done now and the data is showing that that's not where the secularization is starting in Christian homes. You know what the data is showing? That the secular, secularization of our children is actually starting in well-meaning Christian parents' homes. Not when they go to college, but starting off in their home. And here's one of the primary reasons that studies are showing why that's happening is because parents are giving less and less priority to the church, to the gathering together of God's people and the teaching of those principles throughout their home, throughout the week, that that's growing less and less. And it's actually that that is contributing to children who have grown up in Christian homes leaving the church. My kids is an example. Right, so Lily and Lucas... They love sports. Why? Because I love sports. And Lily loves basketball and volleyball, and Lucas loves football and basketball. And, you know, I think they're pretty decent at them. And here's what I find interesting is that if I gave them the opportunity to be on every travel team that, that they are offered so that they're missing church every single week, I'm not dumb enough to think that if I gave them the choice to choose that or not, they probably would default in probably choosing that at this time. Don't judge my kids. They're no different than yours just because they're pastor's kids. But they're 13 and 10. Why won't I do that? 
because they're 13 and 10. And I have a much longer view for their life than they do right now. So I'm not going to let them eat whatever they want, and I'm not going to let them go to bed whenever they want, and I'm not going to let them play with the guns that are in our house whenever they want. Why? Because I want what's best for them, because I love them. And I want them to do well in life. Right? And I find it so interesting that I hear this so often now, and I'm not saying I hear it from any person in this church, so don't start thinking, who's the last person that Johnny had a conversation with? But I'm shocked by some of the things that I hear mom and dad say now. Like, man, getting my kids out of bed on a Sunday morning is just so hard, so I just let them stay in bed. I just want to give my kids the freedom to decide for themselves what they want to do. Where else do we apply that type of logic? Like tomorrow morning, my kids are going to wake up. Lily's going to wake up at 6 a.m. and Lucas is going to wake up at 7 a.m. And if they said when that alarm clock went off, Dad, I'm just not feeling school today. Just not feeling it today. And I'm like, why, Lucas? Why, Lily? Well, you don't understand, man. My teacher's so mean. And I don't understand anything that she, he or she says. So I don't want to go. Then Lucas is like, Dad, you don't realize it. Out of eight hours of school, I only get 30 minutes to play outside. Well, since you put it that way, son, stay in bed. We don't apply this logic anywhere else. Anywhere else. And my fear is that we are not giving enough intentionality for us to show our children while they're young that church isn't just something that you clock in and clock out for, but church is a place, the gathering together of God's people is a place where we learn from God's word, we're encouraged to learn apart from a gathering during the week, and that we are stressing that, that the secularization of our kids is not because we are not being intentional to teach diligently what God's word has to say. Deuteronomy 6. We get deceived. We get tripped up. And what we fail to understand is half-hearted obedience in this generation leads to rebellion in the next. And let me just be clear on this. That me checking in my kids to harvest kids for an hour a week or dropping them off to the church office so that they can be a part of harvest students for two hours a week is not it either. But it's me saying, wait a minute, we're going to value church and we're going to value God's word and what we hear on a Sunday morning or what they hear in whatever environments they are. I'm also looking at how am I diligently applying that and pouring that into my kids Monday through Saturday. Just to be transparent again for us, I have been not as diligent to even do that in our home every week. And so we went into this year and I evaluated things and I had to apologize to my kids and my wife and say, you know what, I haven't been as diligent as I should have been that every week there's a time where we gather together to pray for one another, to learn from God's word in some way, and that we're getting back to that as a family. I've had to do that. Your pastor's had to do that. Because we all have to go back to what is my purpose in life? It's to glorify him. And my priorities need to be based upon that. 
And so I'm going to glorify God with my family. Because God forbid we want this said of us in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know the greatest way to provoke your kids to anger and to leave the church is for them not to see in the home what you practice once a week here. The dads, you're saying I'm sorry to your kids when you sin. They're seeing you say that to your mom or to your wife. That wives, your kids are seeing you say that to your husband. That we're living out, that we're not perfect, but we're living out what we sing about and what we open our Bibles to on a Sunday morning. We don't want to provoke our children to wrath, to anger, to resentment. And though our kids ultimately have their own choices, and don't get me wrong in that, they ultimately have to decide for themselves how they're going to love God, how they're going to serve God. I understand that. But let it not be because we are not living out Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to glorify God with my family. And then here's the last two. I'm going to glorify God with my finances. It's another God-glorifying priority. And you want to know the reason why Jesus talks about money more than anything else in the Gospels is because money is the greatest barometer to where our heart is. I mean, that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. It's the greatest indicator. And I praise God for the faithfulness of people in this church and giving faithfully to him. And I praise God for what we've seen him be able to bring in that we celebrated at the beginning of this message. But I don't want to give to God based on an event or a goal, but I want to be, be generous with what God has entrusted to me because I understand that my ultimate purpose is to glorify him, and that also means with what he's entrusted to me. Everything that I have is on lease from God. I'm turning it in one day. I'm giving an account. That's Matthew 25, 14 through 30, parable of the talents. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 tells us that. Malachi 3, 10 tells us that. Here's the last thing, and we'll be done. I will glorify God with my commitment to my church. You may be brand new today, and you're looking for a place to call home. And obviously my desire would be is this place would be it. But my greater desire is if this place is not it, that you would find a place to get plugged into, to worship on a consistent basis, to serve with your gifts and abilities that God has entrusted to you, to steward your resources so that his kingdom can be impacted. That's my greatest desire for you. And as we go into this new year, we're saying, wait a minute, I'm going to be committed to my local church. I'm going to be committed in my consistency and gathering together. I'm going to be committed in serving and getting involved in serving this church and stepping up where I see gaps and using my talents and abilities even outside of this place for his honor and his glory. And I'm going to be committed to get involved in biblical communities. We already talked about that. I'm going to be committed to this church, and that's a way that I glorify God because the church is the means that God has built up for the gospel to go forth. What did Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My purpose shapes my priorities.